want to welcome you once again to King's Cross Church. It's so good to have you. That passage was great in our lectionary reading. I don't know if you're paying attention, but there's always an intentional pairing of the two passages. A picture of um, that great kind of white sheet being let down with all of these once detestable foods that were, you know, not even thought of being touched or eaten, now being made useful and delicious. Um, and then the simultaneous picture we had in Revelation of the bride, the Church of Christ. You think of who is that composing? It's composed of people who were once detestable, unwelcome, useless in the world's eyes, foolish. And, but because of what Christ has done, it's being let down and is making the world beautiful. And that's what the church is. I just thought that was this very a beautiful passage that we uh, had this morning to open our hearts in, to God's word. Well, we are uh, in a very different book called The Song of Solomon. It's a love song. It's celebrating the goodness of intimacy, of passion, of love. Um, and we are in a sermon series that is asking You know, what if the Bible's right, and we believe it is, that we're created to love, that this love touches every aspect of life, giving it meaning and purpose when we understand love's power. Indeed, the Bible says uh, brazen things uh, like God is love. And there's faith, there's hope, there's love, but the greatest thing of all, Paul says, is love. You can't escape that. If you're going to do justice to God's word, what God says about himself, about you, why you were created, and what the world's about, you have to come to grips with love and how it touches every single aspect and turns it right in a broken world. So we're going to talk today about, uh, in a passage that we've been kind of combing through again and again, finding gems, And today we're going to talk about community, how love is being in community. Let me read our passage for us from Song of Songs, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. God's word says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, she, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, and your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out, therefore the virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. The friends say, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine, rightly do they love you. She says again, I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keepers of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? And he says, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, Follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherds. 
tense. Let's pray. Father, would you add your blessing to this, your people's reading, that our hearts might be moved and our minds might be enlightened and that community would not just be a general word we throw around, but something we intentionally seek to build in the name of Jesus and for his glory and a way that would bless the world. Amen. So there was a brilliant prank uh, in a high school, obviously not in New York when you hear this story um, some time ago, but as some smart teenagers will go, this is a pretty smart one. So they, they, what they did is uh, some of these students brought three goats into the high school and set them loose. And on each goat, they had a number spray painted on there. The first goat had the number one. The second goat had the number two. The third goat had the number four written on it. And the school faculty spent all day, as you can imagine, looking for goat number three. Uh, They canceled school, in fact. Um, And the point is, how much of our time Are we unhappy? Are we dissatisfied? Are we not present because we truly believe something is lacking? And despite all that we have in this moment, all that we need actually being here in our life. In fact, we're told that God has provided for us everything in Christ Jesus that pertains to living a beautiful life, a right life. He's provided it all. But we're still looking for goat number three. So that fundamental lack of being at peace, right? the turbulent waters that you and I come in here with that distract us, that constantly pull us out of the moment thinking about the next thing to, to do and the next thing and the next thing or the things that we did or that we should have done instead. They keep us from being present with the Lord Jesus. They keep us from being present with one another And it affects the kind of community that Jesus intends for his church. Verse 4 of our text this morning, though, we see that the two figures, uh, you know, this Romeo and Juliet, if you will, are not alone, right? It it surprises us because, you know, they they are getting pretty explicit about their desires for one another, right? If we go into some of the imagery later on in the text, it would make even some of us blush, but they're not alone. We're seeing, seeing that there is community here, that their expression and their, their love played out is not in secrecy. Um, there's a community about them. What I'd like you to see this morning with me is, and marvel at is that this community has been invited into the love of the two in such a way that they're able to rejoice and sing the praises of their love. It tells us something countercultural to what we've been told about love. K-dramas, for instance, um, it's kind of a universal thing now, so I feel, feel it's a fair, uh, not that I would know, okay? But uh, I'm just, listen, uh, the, the, what's the formula? The love triangle, right? And it's grippy, you know, we want to know uh, how the story ends because in a love triangle, you always know one person is going to get the ax, right? One guy gets, or one girl gets, right? And the other one is like out of the picture in the end. And they keep you hanging on and guessing, right? Um, But 
that just tells us that the popular narrative that we're told about love, romance, passion, and intimacy is that you always have to choose between community, relationship, and intimacy. What we're being told here is that it's not an either or, right? That deep and true love, when it comes from God, sustained by God, actually and always brings us into deeper relationship with one another. So, rather than having this passionate romance derail this couple, we're going to see that their voices bring out song and dance of others and bring them into the picture, right? So much so, in verse 4 we read, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Talking about like all the people who are already appreciate, the maidens who already appreciate um, this couple's romance. Rightly do they love you. So listen, the, the fact that these friends are genuinely praising Actually extolling the love of these two tells us something important. There's no scent of envy. There's no hint of jealousy in their eyes. Flashing and fantasizing, oh, if that could only be me. They're genuinely delighted in what is going on in these two life. See, if there was ever a place where scripture might say community doesn't matter, it would be in deep, you know, uh, romantic union of husband and wife right right it's the picture of disney is always you have the two kind of floating off into the clouds right you know it's but what you have here is that actually the more in love we become if it's the way that god loves us if it's through the love of god we're deepened in community we're not on a secluded island not on a magic carpet well what is community uh in his book a different drum Community Making and Peace, Scott Peck writes this, and it's a, it's a fair, I think, um, crack at defining community. This is what he says. He argues that shalom, God's life-giving order for the world, comes not through couples, not even primarily through families, but through community. And he says this, a community is a group of individuals who've learned how to communicate honestly with one another whose relationships go deeper than their masks of composure. We're all, many of us right now are wearing masks of composure. And they've developed some significant commitment to rejoice together and to mourn together, to delight in each other and to make others' conditions our own. Now, do you see? To that we say, aha, So this is what's happening in our passage. Why are they celebrating this couple's love? Why are they happy, so happy and thrilled and rejoicing that these two have found each other? It's because they're in deep community with one another. They've committed to delight in each other. If this is a win for you, it's a win for me. If you're brokenhearted, we'll be brokenhearted. One might say, where you go, I will go. And Your people will be my people, your God, my God. They've covenanted with one another. They are in deep community is what we're seeing here. And this is what it looks like. In one of the most intimate moments of two people's lives, community is there and is being blessed and it's a shared moment. Now, you and I do not live in a culture that promotes these kinds of relationships. And therefore, 
to build community, if we are to actually enjoy love and celebrate and experience and practice love in the way the Bible intends, we are at a disadvantage. But the good news is the Bible is all about recovering and redeeming what is lost. So if the God who is love is here in us, then this is possible. So I'd like us to consider just a, just kind of two headings this morning. Let's just look at the enemies that community faces and the invitation to community. So enemy that, enemies that community faces. And these are, this is not um, uh, def- definitive and like um, expansive to the point where from beginning to end I'm going to name everything so you know they have the entire book on, on dangers. But these are some things that stand out to me that I think our culture brings, that we bring in with us to at least church that could stand in the way for us to build deeper community. So let's consider this. The first one is, and perhaps one of the greatest enemies to community is dissatisfaction. And I kind of alluded it, uh, about that earlier with the whole goat thing, Right? dissatisfaction. And that has deeper roots. And these are kind of ugly terms. I started off with a lighter term, dissatisfaction, but it's actually rooted in greed and envy. You know, it's wanting more than you need or wanting something that's not yours, that God hasn't given to you, right? Wanting something more than you need or wanting something that's not yours. So dissatisfaction it's this neutral state of mind where you go to if only, right? If only. It's more about this sense of being perpetually dissatisfied. If only I could get that company to hire me. If only I could have someone love me the way I want to be loved. If only I could have uh, a nicer apartment, you know, with a little bit more sun, so my plants wouldn't die. If only I could have a family, my family live on that level of comfort. If only I could get the day shift. If only I could have gotten that parking space. If only I had more free time. And it keeps going. It keeps going. And the problem is that when you get that thing that you, even if you do get that if only thing, you still haven't solved that root issue of greed and envy dissatisfaction and so there's another if only that comes up sooner or later and when we when we live by if only's we're inherently telling ourselves that that thing is the key to our deep happiness we're constantly preaching to ourselves passively that thing heart that thing me will make you happy and is will be the source of eternal bliss which of course is a lie so we also now have lies and untruth that we are believing and bringing into ourselves. It's a gateway to just having a darkened mind and heart. Now for me, I know that greed, envy, dissatisfaction is at work in my heart when I'm here. A great way, a litmus test is, is it easy to praise? I'm not talking about like if it's a song that I like or know. There's a general sense that I have when I come in here is my posture one of giving. That I'm, who, I'm wondering, who will I see today? I wonder, how will I love them? How will I be called into love? And how will I be just kind of swept off my feet at the God of grace? Or is it really hard? 
And usually there's a direct correlation between my ability to worship and praise and my dissatisfaction. So take a moment and self-reflect, take stock. This morning, this is not in any way to make you feel like, oh man, I should have, but it's, we're here to be honest with one another. Um, it, all right, have you been in a season? Is it hard for you to worship? Right? I understand that there's different styles of worship and different kinds of ways that we, we feel moved, but in general, when you see a thing of beauty, when you were outside this morning and the weather was perfect, was there just a moment of, of gratitude towards God? God, thank you. What a beautiful day to just come in t- with your people and, and be at peace, right? To be in a space where I know I'm accepted, that I'm going to be welcomed into, to be surrounded with things of beauty and music. Uh, what a blessing, God. Is it, was it easy to worship God or was it there churning? Right, that's how I know. Because how could we worship? Why would we worship if we're utterly dissatisfied? See, this is why God gives us a gift of worship because it tells us, it immediately tells us the state of our heart. Now the way this translates to community is we may desire community. Listen, we may on the outside say, I really like the community here at King's Cross. Or, or it's like, uh, would you pray for me because I really am seeking to go deeper into community. Cool. But that may only be because we believe it can satisfy our desire to not be alone, which is just another form of if only. If only I can find the right church because my last one was a little rocky, so I'm here. If only I can find the right church with the right kind of people who accept me for I am, then what? So in this case, greed, envy, wanting something being dissatisfied still at work but more subtly because we won't complain as long as community is meeting my need but there is no generosity there's usually no generosity of time or resource or self in that state it's an exchange because it's a barter it's a transaction and that's a very stifling way to live if you think about it but this is the climate, this is the culture that we live in where everything is an exchange, a barter. David Brooks calls this mindset that we live in, the culture that we are seeped in, hyper-individualism. He says it's the prevailing culture of our day, and he points to how hyper-individualists find themselves enmeshed in a network of conditional loves. It's the ocean you swim in. I'm worthy of being loved only when I have achieved the status or success the world expects of me. Or, I am worthy of love only when I can offer the other person something in return. Very common in church churches. Or, I am only what the world says about me. In the end, hyper-individualism doesn't make people self-sufficient and secure. It obliterates emotional and spiritual security by making everything conditional. I do this for you, you do this for me. We get to taste a series of experiences which may be pleasant, but which don't accumulate into anything because they're not serving a greater cause, a grander story, a larger narrative. Have you experienced that lately? Right? A lot of us are going back out, traveling more, but what is it all for? Besides the pictures on your phone now that you can look at while you're in the bathroom. What good is that? Right? 
How does that add into the grander narrative of how that brings a better understanding of what your life is meant to be and what you're going to leave on this earth when you die? Interestingly, the destination of hyper-individualism is something that could be confused with being in a loving community. Here's the danger. Like, we could follow this path of hyper-individualism and believe, I'm following Jesus, and here's why. Because there is a dark, twisted version at the end of hyper-individualism that looks similar to community, but it's called tribalism. Now listen to what Brooks defines that as. He says, people in hyper-individualist kind of state of mind eventually rebel against the isolation and meaninglessness of, of it all by joining a partisan tribe. This seems like relation, but it's actually the opposite. If true community is based on mutual affection, right? That's what Song of Songs is all about. The tribalist mentality is based on mutual distrust. It's always us versus them, friend or enemy, destroy or be destroyed. Anger is the mode. The tribalist is seeking connection, but isolates themselves ever more bitterly within their own resentments and distrusts. In other words, it is entirely possible for you to be an active part of church, to, ha- to seem like you, you, know, you have this close-knit group around you, to call it community, but we're actually practicing tribalism. Right? Mutual affection or mutual distrust. Is it easy for an outsider who's very different than your circle of friends to enter in because they're going to experience mutual love and open-mindedness, a sense of vulnerability? Or is it difficult because they're going to be met with distrust, skepticism? We need to really consider that as a church. It is so easy, either in small pockets of the church or the church as a whole, to be practicing uh, tribalism. Uh, This is who we are as King's Cross. And when you come in here, well, we'll see how you do for a little bit. We'll test you out. We'll see if you really do fit in here. But we want to make sure you're one of the good guys. Hmm. That's not what we see in the Song of Songs. We have to see that no one is weighing pros and cons. No one is being celebrated because they have a certain stance. They're being celebrated because they know love is the best and they see love in the other. Now what is the healing from hyper-individualism? Because I don't want to just point this out and leave us hanging. What if some of us here are feeling kind of a piercing moment of the Holy Spirit going, ouch, I don't know if I'm practicing community. I don't know if I'm practicing, I think I'm practicing what if, uh, or if only, excuse me, if only, and I've been ruled by that. How do we get out of that? I think I've been using community more so to meet my needs than actually to receive and give love. What do I do then? Well, the pattern for all of healing in, 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 uh, in the biblical view of humanity is that we need to die to the old way and start living in a new way. Those two things kind of simultaneously happen. We, we die looking at Jesus who, who on the cross Made, gave us the power to die to our sins and look to his resurrection to begin a new way. And so this is what we do. 
Uh, there's always been the pattern in Jesus' life if you paid attention to it. Uh, I don't mean that in a demeaning way, but like we really do need to look at Jesus, the way he lived, and, and say there's so much wisdom there. There's so much power and, 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 and thoughtfulness in how he lived that tells us how to be free of this. Before he gives himself into myriads and myriads of disciples and friends and circles and builds community that would one day be the church, what does he do? Think about it, what does he do? He enters into a time of solitude in the wilderness. Now Henry Nouwen, uh, who saw that and believed that in his day and age, loneliness was one of the most universal sources of human suffering. And so he had a lot of thoughts on loneliness versus solitude, and this is what he taught. He taught that there's great healing and transformation that God does in our life, which turns, for, in order to build community, turns loneliness into a practice of solitude before we can enter into community, and this is what he, he t- is talking about. Uh, now one says, the fruit of loneliness is p- more pain and suffering. The fruit of solitude is peace and connection with the, the divine. He says, loneliness makes us cling to others in desperation. I need you. The solitude allows us to respect others in their uniqueness and create community, deep bonds of love, of giving and receiving, of serving one another. Now one contended that no friend or lover, no husband or wife, no community or commune will be able to put to rest our deepest cravings for unity and wholeness. It must be sought in the experience of the divine and almighty God submitting to the love of Jesus. And you find him most purely in times of solitude. Uh, it doesn't, and times of solitude doesn't mean that you are necessarily like, in the, like up on a mountain trail by yourself. It could mean that. It might mean that you are with your family, you know, and, and maybe you have two or three, you know, little ones and you're juggling that and you can feel totally alone in, the, in that uh, season of your life. You can be surrounded by peers at work and um, be in a community group and feel utterly unknown and alone. So when I'm, when Nowen is talking about we need God to come in and transform and heal our loneliness to places of solitude, he's not talking about physical, physically being alone. He's talking about spiritually, relationally. So if you're in a season where you are feeling Maybe you got out of bed today or went to bed last night and were just like, man, I feel so alone in this world right now. Maybe the word that God has for you in this is that the first thing he wants to do is he, he doesn't necessarily want to take away the loneliness, but transform, redeem that into seeking solitude with him, to find him. What that does is that allows us to go into community not with the grasping on and clinging to, you need to meet my needs because I'm lonely. But when we've aligned ourselves to the God who knows us, who's with us, we're able to be in, as no one says, respect and serve one another. And this is how community is built. Now the other enemy of community I just want to bring up is the fear of loss. Okay, the fear of loss. There's a sense that we can become so attuned and under the sway of loss that the fear of experiencing it becomes greater than the actual experience of loss itself. 
The fear of loss can be more powerful and more shaking and more life altering than whatever you're, you're afraid of losing. That's actually quite common, right? So now when it comes to community, we, many of us, I think, through various reasons, maybe through really good imaginations of what could happen, or maybe through personal experience or just seeing what's happened to others, we're afraid to dip our toe in the water because we're afraid that we might experience loss. You know, it's that phrase, um, we're always waiting for that punch, right? We're, We're enjoying something, but you're just waiting for something to go wrong, right? The moment you're given a gift, you're waiting for something to turn and bite your hand, right? That fear of loss, uh, what do we do with that? How do we bring that to the Lord Jesus? And in the face of realizing going deeper into community does make you more vulnerable to loss. As you give and open up yourself to others, you may experience loss for his name's sake. How do you you deal with that? That's a real fear. There's a story of uh, novelist uh, Franz Kafka. It went something like this. One day, Kafka was sitting in the park Uh, This is near the end of his life. And there was a little girl who came by. She was a bit distraught. She had tears in in her face. She was crying. And so Kafka asked her to stop and tell him what was wrong. And she told him that she had lost her doll. So they looked around together and the doll was nowhere to be found. So he told her, come back a little later. Uh, I'll, I'll keep looking. So a few days later, the girl returns to the park and Kafka happened to be there. And he said to her, I don't have your doll, but I have a note from your doll. And it reads, I've gone off to travel around the world. Please don't worry about me. I'm fine. So the little girl, she was a little bit relieved, right? So every week or so, the little girl would return to the park. And each time Kafka had another uh, note from, from the doll traveling around the world, traveling, uh, describing these wonderful journeys and travels and sights uh, that they were seeing. Well, Kafka was getting sicker and sicker as time was going on, uh, and he went to the park one last time and met the girl. This time he he brought the girl a, a, a doll, a new doll. He gave the girl the doll and said, well, travels really changed her, but um, some years later, after he had passed, the girl now a young woman, she found that a note had been rolled up inside the doll. And it read, you will lose everyone you love, but the love will always return in new forms. The disciples come to Jesus, they're concerned over what they've given up, what they've lost on his behalf and what they might lose if they commit to continue the journey of building community with him, the community of faith and of seeking him. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or a mother or father or children or lands for my name's sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Because of perfect love casts out fear, 
And perfect love is shown to us in this way that Jesus came and died, he gave his life and he rose again. The resurrection shows us that all that is from and through the love of God cannot be truly lost. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that it will come back in new forms, glorified and whole, and in a way that you will never lose it. Everyone you love, you will lose. But if we love in the way that Jesus calls us to love, they will come back again. That we have not lost anything that can't return. That is how we commit to community, knowing that there could be losses, hard times, and things taken. That's how we can give unconditionally. Lastly, the invitation of Song of Songs, of the invitation to community. The great meditation here is that we were created for a kind of intimacy that is developed in praise, right? That fosters deeper bonds of community. The journey of Christian love isn't one that takes us away from others on a magic carpet ride, but brings us deeper in love and more in touch with those around us. Um, There's a poet, Christian Wyman, who writes, in any true love, a mother's for her child, a husband's for his wife, a friend for a friend. There is an excess energy that always wants to be in motion. Moreover, it seems to move not simply from one person to another, but through them towards something else. Now listen, he quotes another poet. He says, all I know is the more he loved me, the more I loved the world. That's why we can be so baffled, he continues, and overwhelmed by such love. It wants to be more than it is. It cries out inside of us to make it more than it is. So what what we're learning here from Song of Songs is that God's love cannot be contained just between a one-in-one relationship. That church, we're not to waste the love of Jesus Christ. That when the love of Jesus comes through us, he isn't just solely focused on the church, but because he loves us so much, he also loves the world. And he calls us to do the same. That as we learn to love and experience and receive the love of Jesus more, it's not to be this enclosed secret community. But as we just read, the more he loves us, the more we find that for whatever reason, we are loving the world more. That's the way true love is supposed to work. If we find that the more and more we we experience God's grace and and our faith is deepened, the less and less we are able to extend ourselves into the world, we're probably doing something wrong. But if we find the more and more we receive the love of God, we understand it more, are baffled by it more, in awe of it more, and we find that as we go out, we have a deeper compassion, a sense of empathy, a, a deeper amount of patience, and a less grip of irritability because we are satisfied in what he's given us, we're probably doing, receiving it rightly. So here's the invitation we have today. Um, That in the midst of this great romance that God has for his church, right, the world is supposed to look on and rejoice with us at, wow, that's a great love, that is a great romance, right? That is what 
Our neighborhood is supposed to be in the Song of Songs, what we just read in verse 4. Those looking on but are loud in to rejoice with us, right? At the love of God and what he's doing in our community, in our midst. The night that the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread and giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember my love as you go out into the world and let that love open your heart to others. And if you feel guilty, if you feel unworthy, this cup, he, t- he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins of many. It's an unbreakable covenant. It's, Jesus says, I'm building a community here by my blood. Can't be broken. That's how much I love you. That's how much I'm committed to you. Right? Let that cleanse you from all guilt and shame and feelings of inadequacy. So we come, if we're rightly children of God who are thinking and wanting to live out the gospel more, if that's true of you and you've been baptized and you're a member of a, a church, um, we invite you to come and, and take these with seriousness. Take this with a sense of urgency that Jesus, um, I need you now. Uh, so I'm going to invite our elders and deacons to come up and help uh, just administer the Lord's Supper. And the way we do that is we'll just come up and take uh, one and go back to our seats. And there's no, really no uh, shame if, if this is, if you're not a Christian here, that's to be celebrated. That's the passage we just read, that you're to look on and, and, and just join in the thanksgiving of that. Join in the praise and the goodness of that. So, that church, let us come.